here today in London for a really, really special interview where we'll be talking to Matt Hancock in his office in the Houses of Parliament. Matt is best known for his role during the pandemic where he was Health Secretary, but he also has a business career and was previously at the Bank of England. So let's get down to it. Matt, who is Matt Hancock? Well, obviously I'm the MP for West Suffolk. Most people know me best as the former Health Secretary. Uh, But before I did that, all my roles in government and my life before I went into politics uh, was in, in business and in economics. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what got me into politics in the first place, you know, being part of a small family business that my mm. parents ran that nearly went bust. Yeah. And it nearly went bust because of a payments problem, the, the cash flow problem, because a big client couldn't pay their bills. Mm. And that, that's the thing that made me say, how does the whole system work? How can a perfectly decent business sure. almost go bust? And that eventually drove me to, to politics. Yeah, and we'll get to that that kind of business background you, you had later. I just want to also initially touch on, you know, you've done a lot of work around dyslexia recently. Yeah. Can, can you tell us about that? Well, I'm dyslexic. Yeah. And I only discovered that when I got to university. And it was like a light bulb moment when, you know, my, my tutor took me to one side and said, you know, you can, you can talk the talk, but you can't write. Yeah. And I got assessed, formally assessed and diagnosed. And that explained a lot of things that had, you know, I just found English really difficult and all languages actually. Sure. Um, and that helped a lot. So now one of the things that I want to do is make sure that people do get that identification. Yeah. You know, they don't just feel like they're inadequate or stupid. Sure. Um, and they get the support that they yeah. need. And this is true in business as well. So I've got a, you know, I'm working with the education secretary to try to yeah. improve that identification in schools. Mm. But there's also something for the business community to do. And people are just, I think, just waking up to this. You know, di- diversity in the way that people think leads to better business decisions. Sure. And some of the best businesses are really starting to engage with this and actively seek people who think differently in order yeah. to strengthen their businesses. Yeah, and can you just touch on that a little bit more about why someone who's dyslexic might be actually an asset to a business? Look, the the, the skill sets that dyslexic people tend to over-index in and be stronger in are the ones that are increasingly important, mm. like creativity, problem-solving, lateral thinking. And there's all sorts of reasons why dyslexic people tend to be stronger in those areas, but it's a fact. And these are the skills that are increasingly important as the computers do the straight line thinking. Mm. So there's, so there's, the, you know, there's organizations that have long been strong in this area, like uh, GCHQ, which obviously has a very yeah. particular, yeah. you know, job to do. Um, and universal music. And now more and more businesses are seeing that if you just filter out anybody who thinks differently as part of the recruitment and the assessment process, you're going to end up with much more groupthink, much less creativity. Sure. And that kind of plays into a lot of successful business leaders, you know, people you've met, such as Stephen Bartlett, they didn't do particularly well at school. Right. Uh, they maybe dropped out of school. But still, do you feel education is doing enough to kind of actually teach some of these business skills, some of these softer skills, right. you know, and actually realise that you don't necessarily have to have, although it's important, you know, a really successful education to go out and be a successful business leader? Well, I think of it as an, as an and, right? It, 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 there are people who don't think in the same way as others and they need more support to get that 
education. Because the people who end up as successful business leaders who haven't had a good experience at school are the exception. Most people, yeah. if they don't get the support they need at school, mm. actually that that isn't that, you know the outcomes are not good. You know these these pair of stats I think are so powerful that of successful business founders measured by uh, ending up with a business worth over a million, forty percent are dyslexic. In our prisons. More than half of prisoners are dyslexic, mm. right? So, uh, and that compares both of those compared to the population as a whole. Around ten percent of people are dyslexic. So, you know, you go both ways. Yeah. So, it isn't a good thing if you don't get the support you need in school, right? We've got to sort that as well. Yeah. But also, I hope that you know we are increasingly open and encouraging of people who 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 whose brains are just wired differently who think differently that that's obviously that that's great talk but do you do you think the education system is too rigid at the moment in in the sense that you know you have a set curriculum obviously if you're maybe you know privately educated obviously you don't necessarily go into that kind of thing do you, do you think how how easy is that to change well it's it's both hard to change and also you've got to be very careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. so mm. you know um having strong english and maths is evidently the foundation of a successful career and all the stats back up the fact that good phonics based teaching of of language mm. helps whether you're dyslexic or not so that push is important um but the it's the failure to identify means that some people don't get the extra support they might need so I think it is important that you follow the, the science and the evidence base in education. I, you know, I'm not a, one of these people who's for a free-for-all in education. I think it is important that, mm. that the, the, the education system and teachers follow the science. But you have to know what individual people's strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and then there's a broader question about teaching business skills, teaching financial literacy, you know, making sure that people are ready for the workplace, ready to, and have the confidence to be yeah. able to, to operate. You know, starting a business is a, it's easier than it used to be, but it's still, you know, it's a big step. And making sure people get that, the, that broader view of life is, is, it is what the best schools do. It's very important. Sure. No, thanks, Matt. And you mentioned obviously your background at the Bank of England, uh, and obviously, you know, your, your parents have been in business and you've worked in business. I want to talk about the, the economy now, Matt. What, yeah. you know, what we've been through is unprecedented and it's obviously going to take a hit. But what, what is the prognosis, uh, for the UK economy going forward? Well, I'm both worried in the short term, but optimistic in the long mm. term. You know, um, my worry in the short term is that, you know, clearly the labor market, labor market is very tight. Um, inflation's rising faster than it has done for several decades. And the bank has got a tough judgment in terms of the withdrawal of financial support, monetary policy support. So that's like the macroeconomic short-term mm. picture is a real balancing act and going to be very difficult. In the medium to long term, I'm very optimistic if we get the judgments right. You know, we have just seen the announcement of the removal of almost all of the COVID restrictions. Um, this drive to use the fact that we can now regulate ourselves as a country to remove unnecessary burdens, I think this drive is incredibly important. You know, the Brexit referendum was 
six years ago now. And since then, there was obviously the debate about how that was implemented, followed by the pandemic. We've really got to drive to make sure that we make the economy as dynamic as possible. And I think we've got a huge opportunity. And that requires, though, the government, parliament, regulators to embrace the uh, the flexibilities that we've got. Like on uh, on fintech, for instance, yeah. one, just one example, there's now really strong um, investment. We've got a strong ecosystem, but we've got to also seize the opportunity to make this as the UK as liberal a regime as possible and attract mm. and grow uh, business. After all, that's where prosperity comes from in the future. And and so having been the health secretary who's put these rules in place temporarily, yeah. now that they're removed, you know, I'm in a way, I'm back to the thing that got me into politics in the first place, which is how can we help businesses to grow and create the prosperity on which sure. people de- depend? And th- there are some commentators, also some businesses to say, look, we might have a relatively good uh, immediate time in business. But what, what will happen is when companies have got to pay back these loans, which are quite rightly given to them, it could yeah. essentially, then, unless they can trade their way out of that and, and create a surplus, it might cause some issues. Is, yes. is that, that a concern for you? Yeah, that, the, that access to finance is obviously mm. a concern as the temporary business support measures come to an end. Yeah. Um, but it's got to be done. And the question is how best to handle the, that transition you know, but it's going to be a challenge because we've got the unprecedented monetary policy support going to an end at the same mm. time as the Bank of England starts to raise interest rates. And that's obviously their decision. But um, the, that balancing act is very, very difficult. We speak to our readers a lot who, who are business leaders. And what everyone says, and you mentioned earlier, it's labour, it's skills, it's access yeah. to skills. Yeah. Obviously, you know, we can't have it both ways. So, you know, if we want that liberty, you know, yeah. it's, it's up to businesses to, to solve some of these problems. But do you think there's anything the government can do? Yeah, I think it's really important that we um, make sure that not only in in school, uh, but also in the training and skills that are available. For instance, through the apprenticeship system, that there is the the work done to help people uh, get on in the workplace uh, and skill up now that's obvious it's been a big drive for uh for a while but it's even more important now because the the shortages are unbelievable that's you know that's a you know in a way it's a better problem than the opposite right yeah. and um uh, and it's better problem for society than a problem of unemployment and i think most people are surprised that we come out of the pandemic with a problem of labor shortage rather than a problem of unemployment yeah. um and that is a policy success, if you like, um, that there isn't a big unemployment crisis. But yeah. we've got to deal with that, the skills shortage issue. And if the businesses I talk to, you know, it is the number one issue so yeah. often, access to talent. And the solution cannot be the unlimited bringing in of labor from overseas to keep sure. the cost of labor down. Right, because after all, what is the purpose of good economic policy, good business? Mm. It is to ensure that people are better off. That's the that's the end goal, and the best way to do that is through training and development, and and removing some of the jobs, you know, uh, using technology, some of the jobs that are low paid, mm. you know, and can be replaced effectively. Sure. You know, so so the high wage, high tech 
economy is where we've got to be headed for. And I'm going to quote Fidel Castro here, just, but, 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 but bear with me. <laughs> okay. uh, he said that, you know, history would absolve him. Obviously, maybe it didn't. But do you think history, you know, people look back in 20, 30 years and actually think, actually, the government did a pretty decent job with the pandemic. Like you say, we, you know, we, we came out of it without high levels of unemployment. A lot of businesses were saved. Do you, do you think people have been tough on the government and too tough on them and that history will uh, absolve them? Well, I think that it's very important that we learn the lessons mm. and learn the right lessons. And that means learning from the things that went well and learning yeah. from the things that were more challenging and didn't go well. And, you know, on the health side, there were some major, major successes like the vaccine program. But it's not just the vaccines, it's treatments as well. The advances we made in uh, clinical trials, shortening the time, that was essentially a regulatory improvement to say that you can run a series of clinical trials, um, your phase one, phase two, phase three, essentially in parallel rather than mm. in series. Um, so making sure we get the learn the lessons from the things that went well is important. And in the economic space, obviously, furlough was incredibly generous and the business support packages were very, very strong. Um, the policy goal there was to ensure that people could get through because the economic hit was was due to a policy, a government decision, mm. right? The, the decision to have to go into lockdown made for other reasons. So I think that we've got to learn from those policy successes at the same time as, you know, some of the areas which were tougher to deliver on, partly, be, you know, the areas that were toughest were areas where we just didn't have the infrastructure. We didn't have the institutions mm. at the start. Um, you know, if you think about testing, we now regard as having one of the best testing systems in the world. It's an area where I was heavily criticised. But that, but we didn't have a system and we had to build one mm. at incredible pace. And I think history will look back at what we did on testing and say that was tough, but we got to a, we got from essentially zero to one of the best systems in the world in a, you know, in a, in a crisis period of time. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things we'll have a pr full inquiry. It's mm. one of the things I think will come out of it is, Okay, the things that were, where there were most criticisms were mostly areas where the government, the system, society as a whole were building from scratch, like in testing. Sure. And, you know, our readers are business people. You know, the pandemic's been a massive challenge for them. Can you give any insight into, do you see any further challenges? Obviously, we've had the news of Russia's advances in, in Ukraine. What, what do you see as, as the major kind of challenges and hurdles that, that businesses may face going forward? Well, I think that the biggest short-term problem is is definitely the the macroeconomic mm. uh, concern. Um, the challenge is that with inflation running at a, the highest level it's been in decades, some the political pressure is to deal with the cost of living pressures on on families. Um, the challenge is that you don't want to put in place responses that are themselves inflationary, right? Like a loosening of fiscal policy. So there is a short-term real set of risks um, around that are essentially macroeconomic. Mm, okay. I think that is the biggest, that's my biggest worry for uh, business and the economy for 2022. Mm. As I say, I think the medium to long-term opportunities are absolutely mm. there for the taking 
we've got to make sure that we seize them. I just want to move on to some sort of sectors within business now. I, I, I'm not a crypto expert, but what does crypto mean to you? Yeah. And why could it be good for businesses and people? So I, the reason that I've been speaking out on crypto is because I think it's incredibly important that as a country, we are uh, open and liberal to innovative new assets, innovative new developments, right? In the case of crypto, for instance, um, of course there are challenges and of course there's a need for a regulatory regime, for instance, on anti-money laundering. Uh, and it's, it, it's vital that as we put that in place, so we do it in a way that encourages investment, encourages growth and encourages the industry to be based here because it's going to happen, right? Cryptocurrencies exist. They will continue to exist. We don't have a choice about that. We have a choice about whether they, whether we benefit from that mm. and whether the, the regime around them is liberal at the same time as guarding against some of the risks. It's too easy for the debate in politics to be, oh, look at this new thing. Uh, how can we stop that, mm. right? And that is quite a strong impulse. And I think it's very important that we also have voices saying, let us seize the opportunities out of these new innovations and make sure that the regulator and government response is to, is to embrace uh, fintech and, and crypto, you know, it, it just is one of the most interesting mm. parts of, uh, of fintech. So, you know, for instance, people should be able to invest in crypto, you know, mm. there, are, there are some voices saying, well, this, this is a risky asset. It goes up and it goes down. Therefore, we should protect people by stopping them from investment in, investing in it. Well, hold mm. on. You know, you can invest in currency, other currencies, you know, old-fashioned fiat currencies. You can invest in equities. Obviously, we have to be clear about the risks, but caveat emptor should apply. So that's why I've got into that debate. It's something I've followed for a long time. Um, I worked on blockchain in previous mm. government jobs, for instance, the payment of aid contracts yeah. in using blockchain technology um so it's not so but it's obviously an area that i haven't spoken about much in recent years because i've been concentrating on the pandemic um but i think as we come out of the pandemic our overall approach has got to be a pro-innovation and liberal attitude to regulation and it's just too easy to slip back from that do you think there is a democracy, a sort of democratization aspect of crypto in the sense that, you know, if I invest a pound on, on the stock exchange, it probably won't go very far, but with a, you know, with well, crypto, it potentially can? Yeah, I think, actually, I think there's a financial inclusion aspect. I want people to be able to access investments that might perform well. And might is important. People can understand risk. You know, we shouldn't be patronizing mm. about people's ability to understand risk. Sure, they should invest no more than they can afford to lose in super high-risk assets. But we shouldn't say just because you're not a high net worth, you can't invest in high-risk in high assets. After all, that's always been the approach that we've taken to publicly traded equities. Mm. But less and less equity as a proportion is publicly traded because we put more and more regulations and requirements on, uh, on, on listing. Um, I'm glad to see there's some steps in the right direction in that space. But you know, this is about... A, empowering people to have access to investments. You know, it isn't for me as a politician to say what investments you should and shouldn't be going into. I think that the job of the, the system and the regulator is to make sure there is a open framework with transparency and fair, for instance, disclosure and advertising rules. Um, 
allowing people to make intelligent decisions from for themselves. And I really hate the sort of patronizing view of, well, if you're not rich, you can't, you couldn't possibly be wanting to invest in crypto. Well, hello. Mm. No, no, very, very, very good point. Um, you know, crypto's you know wrapped up in innovation, which you mentioned earlier, and about how the UK can be at the forefront of that. Where, where do you see the UK in comparison to France, Germany, and then further afield, kind of Singapore and yeah. Korea? Well, we've got a massive opportunity compared to mm. the uh, the EU and continental Europe. Um, they are they're bringing in their own regulation of this space. I think we can be more dynamic and more uh, and more liberal. Um, there are other jurisdictions that are you know, very well placed, and Singapore is another example. Then, of course, there's the US with its complicated uh, financial regulatory regime. It, the US is always going to be bigger than us, mm. uh, but we have the opportunity to be more dynamic. And in terms of, you know, there's been very, very well record levels of inward investment into the UK. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the UK has always been a welcoming country in that sense. If uh, I'm an investor looking at this interview, what would be your message to, to, to people looking to invest in the UK? Well, I think that the opportunities are exciting. Mm. And I think there's a, we've got a real chance over the next few years to uh, to strengthen the ecosystem, uh, to um, improve and liberate uh, on the regulatory side, and we can see others really piling into the UK in terms of investment. You know, when I was first working on policy in this area over a decade ago, the big question was the the so-called Valley of Death from the startup funding, which was not too bad, up to the publicly listed markets. That space now has increasing amounts of investment in it. Mm. The scale-up space that is a real success. It makes the the UK ecosystem uh, much much stronger. Others are coming, and there are policymakers here who are positive and optimistic and progressive about strengthening this further. You mentioned that uh, that kind of wall of capital that's available. There's record amounts of capital available to business. Do you think that could have an unintended consequence? Whereby instead of actually going out getting product market fit, which businesses may be used to more, that it's you know too easy to raise money and and too and almost raising money has become a celebration and you haven't even made a profit or, or turned over any money. Look, I think that's a really nice problem to have. Yeah, you know, if from a from a policy point of view, mm. that I, which is my space, if your um, if your jurisdiction has got a problem of of, of it's too easy to raise capital, mm. you know. Obviously, you've got to be cognizant of that, but it's like a hundred times better than the opposite problem. So a bit like there being a skills shortage being better than an unemployment problem. Yes, you've got to uh, address challenges in that space. I'm not actually sure there's that much that the government can do about people's choices of when to exit and, you know, and how to exit. You know, there's too, there's lots of people who say too many people exit too early and exit into, especially into American hands. And, hmm. um, you know, the best policy answer to that is ensure that there are investment opportunities available and that the, and that market is working effectively. Um, so things like making it easier to list on public markets if you want to go down that route here rather than having to go to NASDAQ or, or, hmm. or New York. Um, so there are policy solutions, but it's a good problem to have. Sure. And, um, uh, Mr. Business Leader, who's watching this, who's become disengaged with politics, say, "Well, it doesn't matter to me. I'm just running my business." What? Why? Why does it matter to them? And what's your message to them? Well, what I'd say to Mr. or Mrs. Business Leader, who's watching this, is that there is a new push, a new opportunity to make sure that the UK is welcoming, open, 
and supportive of your innovation and growth. And you know, my potted history that I give is that you know a decade or so ago there was a real drive in this space, made a big progress. Politics then spent uh, a few years debating how to do Brexit, and then two years handling the pandemic. And those were the overriding uh, priorities um, here in this place, you know, in, in, in Westminster. Now, as we're coming out of the pandemic, we have the opportunity to, to, to go back into, you know, the causes of the roots of prosperity, which is all about supporting business growth. And that's what I want to see. You know, who, what business leaders do you admire? Is there any one particular that you think, crikey, they've done a great job? You know, a lot of the best business leaders I admire most would absolutely hate it if I named them in an answer to this question. <laughs> I mean, you know, of course there's there's a whole load. So I, 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 that must sound like a terrible politician answer and not answering the question. But, you know, there are, there are and, there, and there's so many. You know, some of the ones I admire most are people who take ideas from, especially from the academic institutions, Hmm. And turn them into really successful businesses, you know, meshing together uh, the incredibly rich um, academic innovation space and turning them into uh, and getting them going. Um, but uh, but uh, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name an individual. And if you didn't like this question, you might not like this. If you didn't like that <laughs> question, you might not like this one. One thing, Matt, that we can't find about you yeah. online. Yeah, we we need a secret now. We need to reveal something that you do or an interest that we won't be able to find online. Oh Christ! So much of my life is public, for better or for worse. <laughs> um, that um, uh, that's a really that's a really good question. I would say I no. would have said if you'd asked me this a fortnight ago, I would have said I really love outdoor swimming in cold water. But then 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 somebody you know snapped me doing that as well. And just finally, um, what next for Matt Hancock? Well, this, the drive to make sure that we have a positive voices for enterprise and for innovation is incredibly important. I also want to make sure that I, uh, I, I, I right the wrong on dyslexia that I suffered, that you know, four out of five kids still leave school without their dyslexia identified if they're dyslexic. Four out of five. Mm. So I've got these sort of two big projects. One is pro-enterprise, pro-innovation, making sure that the, the government regulators are in a good space on that. Um, and the second is making sure that all children, if they're dyslexic, get that identified, get the support that they need. And um, and, and two big projects like that, that's, uh, that's enough for me. Mm.